0: Squirrel will say something about it. Yeah, he will. He will. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel the Host, scratchy voice and all. I am here. It is Tuesday, February 14th. It is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you. And this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast that is dedicated primarily to the, (laughs) that's the old tag. (laughs) You say that for a year, you get used to it. This is a podcast dedicated to scripture, history, theology, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every day at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch, and then the podcast is available wherever fine podcasts are found. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com and check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. Folks, I feel a lot better than I sound, so be reassured there. But I just want to let you know that I am preaching this coming Sunday at Vaughn Community Bible Church in Vaughn, Montana, just outside of Great Falls. Therefore, this will be the only squirrel chatter this week because I've got to recover my voice. So I will not be doing squirrel chatter the rest of the week so that I can rest my voice up for Sunday because... As much as I love the podcast, and as important as I think it is, preaching the Word of God is much more important, and the service that I can do to a local church is much more important. So I'm going to be taking the rest of the week off. As you can hear, my voice needs some rest. But today, we do have prayers from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, And then it's Monday Meanderings on Tuesday, as we are going to discuss the Ashbury Revival. So we will see what Scripture has to say on that topic. So let us begin, as is our practice, with the Prayer of Confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and Most Merciful Father, according to thy promises declared unto mankind, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. This devotional is entitled, Jesus' Real Food, Obeying the Father. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4 4. Dr. MacArthur writes, Above all, Satan's temptations of Jesus Christ solicited his rebellion against the Father. But Jesus had come to earth to do the Father's will and nothing else. In fact, His will and the Father's were precisely the same. John 5.30 cross reference. John 10, 30, and Hebrews 10, 9. Case in point, in the ultimate test of obedience, just prior to his arrest and betrayal, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. That's Matthew 26, 39, and 42. The supreme example of absolute trust and submission by Jesus to his Father is what Satan tried to smash. In his proudest and wickedest manner, the enemy attempted to fracture the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. But Christ, in his immeasurable humility and righteousness, replied to Satan's first words, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All three of our Lord's responses to Satan would begin with the simple but straightforward appeal to the Word of God. It is written. Cross-reference, Psalm 119.11. In quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus affirmed that believers are far better off depending on God and waiting on His provision than they are in grabbing for their own satisfaction, something we are all tempted to do. Ask yourself, you may feel unsure of what God's will is for you, but much of it is spelled out clearly in Scripture. How well are you obeying the aspects of His will that you have already been, that have already been revealed to you? In seeking to know His plan, a good place to start is always obedience to His Word. All right. Monday meanderings on a Tuesday. The Ashbury Revival. I started seeing something about this on Friday. Um, Started hearing that something was going on in Kentucky and, and people were talking about a revival and this, that, and the other thing. And so just, you know, started seeing things on Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. So apparently what has happened is last Wednesday, the morning chapel service at Ashbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, didn't end. After the speaker finished, students didn't leave. And apparently, today, seven days later, that chapel is still packed with people now. Now, I watched the video of the message from last Wednesday, the one that kicked all this off. And before I get to that, let me say this. There's a lot of question, is this a real revival or not? And that's what we're talking about this morning. Is this a real revival or not? And we're going to be looking at what are the signs of a real revival? First off, the word revival doesn't appear in scripture. It is a modern word. And indeed, I'm not really sure it's scriptural. Now, there are certainly workings of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when when Peter stands up and preaches at Pentecost and and 3,000 people repent and believe and are saved and added to the church. And, of course, the effects of that were very long-lasting. We see that. In other places of Scripture, and we're going to look at another example of that later this morning. But revival isn't a uh, biblical phrase. The Bible is full of calls to pray for repentance, there, it's full of calls to pray for forgiveness, it's full of admonitions to present the gospel. There are no calls in the scripture to pray for revival. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there. In the, in the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the only one I ran a search on, the word revival doesn't appear in the biblical text at all. Neither revive nor revival. So I watched the video over the weekend of the message from last Wednesday. And it's posted on the Ashbury University Chapel website. And there have been two subsequent messages because they had a chapel service on Friday and they had a chapel service yesterday. I have not watched yesterday's. I watched part of Friday's. But I watched all of the one from last Wednesday. The message was, Becoming Love in Action, from Romans 12, 13, and 14, by Reverend Zach Merkrebs And I hope I'm pronouncing his, his name right. It's M-E-E-R-K-R-E-E-B-S. Obviously a very Dutch name. Um, but I watched his message. And I have a couple of observations. It's a 25-minute 25, 25 chapel message. Now, while he, he read Romans 12, 13, and 14 which is talking about Christian obligations. Um, in fact, let me, let me go ahead and read that. I wasn't planning on doing this, but let me go ahead and read that. Uh, give me just a minute to find it here. Romans 12. Because when I get to what he actually talked about, I think you'll, you'll see the interesting thing there. So it's verses 13 and 14. Contributing to the needs of the saints pursuing hospitality bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse so that was his text for this message now neither one of those are complete sentences that's the end of a sentence and the beginning of a, the next sentence and it's actually uh the, the the in the lsb it's a paragraph break so I'm not quite sure that he's preaching from the same pericope, but be that as it may, his message had no gospel. There was no mention of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and there was no call to repentance. It was entirely work-based. Now, what he said was, he did, he, he did say some good things. He said, basically, you can't do these things. Um, in your own strength, there is no way you can do this. Yes, I agree. Absolutely right. But what he said was, you cannot love your neighbor. And he did. He took this to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a good parallel. These are all examples of loving your neighbor. But he said, you can't love your neighbor until you feel the love of God. His emphasis was on emotion and subjective feelings. And indeed, he ended the message with a call for victims of, quote unquote, abusive love to come forward and receive the real love of God. Now, remember, and he said he would stay there as long as he needed to, to talk to people after chapel. And obviously, something happened after he ended and everybody ended up staying. But his message was, again, no gospel, nothing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, nothing about um, repentance and faith. It was all those the subjective feelings and emotion well i want to turn from ashbury to jonathan edwards because jonathan edwards back in the 1700s his sermon sinners in the hands of the of an angry god is looked at by many as the kickoff of what we know as the Great Awakening. And this took place in the American colonies in the 1730s and 40s. Edward's message, centers in the Hands of an Angry God, is a message of man's sinfulness and God's coming judgment and the threat of God's judgment that hangs over every human being, because of their sinfulness. Indeed, he says, he compares every sinful man to a spider hanging by a thread of web over the pit of fire, and that God can snap that thread at any moment. And it was a true revival. It had great lasting effect. On Christianity in America, and indeed in the U.K., as the revival did spread across the Atlantic, many great preachers—George uh, Whitfield, uh, the Wesleys—all of this, you know, was about the same time in the Great Awakening. And so you had this genuine, you know, ten to fifteen-year movement. And the effects echo down even to today. Well, in the midst of that, Edwards wrote a treatise on distinguishing marks. This is his title. Distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. And he wrote about how to tell a true work of the Spirit from a false work of the Spirit. And he based that on 1 John 4. Um, particularly on verse John 4, 1 through 6. 1 John 4, 1 through 6 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Excuse me. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world hears them. We are from God. The one who knows God hears us. The one who is not from God does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, Edwards wrote on how to tell a true work of the spirit of God. And he gave nine signs which are not signs of a true work. Now, these these are things by which you are not to judge a work of the spirit. These things may or may not be present. And just because these things are present doesn't mean it's a real work of the Spirit. And just because these things are not present doesn't mean it isn't a real work of the Spirit. So these are signs that may or may not be present in a real work of the Spirit. Unfortunately, these are the signs that are pointed to by modern revivalists. Now I'm using Denny Burke's updated and simplified language from a, a blog post that he put up on Friday, because Edwards's original language is pretty tough sledding, and I was getting ready to to do this, and I was kind of trying to put it into to modern and more understandable terms, and I realized Denny Burke had already done the work, so I'm using his, and and uh, so I I will. Uh, um, point you to his blog, dennyburk.com. And he does, I think his uh, article is Some Thoughts on Ashbury. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Okay. First thing he said is the work is unusual or extraordinary. Unusual things happen all the time. And they're not necessarily a work of the spirit. For example, just on the other end of the spectrum, Black Lives Matter. And the riots of 2020, burning down cities and stuff like that—that that was unusual. That was extraordinary. These are not things that happen normally. Those were not works of the spirit of God. I think we can all agree on that. So just because something is out of the ordinary, doesn't mean it's a work of the spirit. Things out of ordinary things happen all the time. Um, just in the natural quarter course of events and quite often it's you know not for godly purposes it can be sinful purposes the other thing is it produces bodily or emotional effects because people get emotional people think oh it's a work of god people are getting emotional well i watched the super bowl on sunday there were a lot of emotional people At the Super Bowl, I watched, there was a video clip of a crowd gathered, I believe, at the, at the stadium where the, in, in uh, Kansas City where the Chiefs play. There was a crowd of people gathered to watch the Super Bowl because, of course, they were playing in Phoenix. And they were watching the game. And when they won, oh, there was emotion everywhere. There were shouts of joy. There were tears. There was jumping up and down. People were hugging each other. This was not a work of the Spirit of God. These were normal human emotions based upon the fact that these people were invested in their sports franchise. I'm not saying they were bad emotions. You know, I have friends who are fans of the Kansas City Chiefs who were overjoyed that Kansas City had won. And looking back on the last appearance by my Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl, had they held on and beaten the Patriots instead of blowing the biggest lead in Super Bowl history, but we won't go there, if they had held on and won over the Patriots, I would have been emotional. But that wouldn't have been a work of the Holy Spirit, normal human emotions. So if there are emotional effects, or if there are bodily effects, what do I mean by bodily effects? Um, great emotions can affect you physically. People can grow faint. People can grow weak. You know, there, there can be bodily effects. Um, so, you know, fainting, convulsions, anything like that can be brought on by normal psychological reasons. Um, usually caused by emotion. Um, whether good or bad. And we've all seen, at least in movies, we've seen depictions of people fainting when they're shocked, um, when something happens that shocks or surprises them. So just because that happens, it doesn't mean that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. So if people are getting emotional and people are fainting and falling down and stuff like that, that's not a sign that it's a work of the Holy Spirit is that people may have fainted at the Super Bowl parties. I don't know. The third thing that says, that Edward says does not depict a true work of the Holy Spirit, he says it occasions a great deal of noise about religion. That something can happen and people are talking about it, and it has the tag of religion, and it gets people talking about religion, it still doesn't mean it's an actual work of the spirit. When we get to the actual signs of religion, I'll come back to this point and point out why the true signs of a religion that that why this isn't a sign but that is and we'll get back to that. Number 4 is great impressions are made on the imagination. This one is is a strange thing when you first start thinking about it, but I read through Edwards's treatise yesterday, which I've read before. And like I said, his language is pretty heavy sledding. His vocabulary is, is difficult and it's not modern English. I mean, it was written in the 1740s. Um, so it is tough sledding and he uses some difficult words and I'm not an Edwards scholar by any means. But what I gleaned from what he wrote about this, he talks about, um, and, and, and I was reading a parallel passage in, in his uh, work on religious affections, um, which is kind of a parallel work to a lot of what he said here in his thing on, on works of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about people, we all have an inner voice I mean, when I think, I hear myself thinking, and I talk to myself in my head, and my thoughts take the form of words, and I will be quite honest, sometimes my thoughts I hear in the voice of my father, because it's stuff he told me that I'm remembering, that I need to take into account there are people who can think this inner voice that we all have is actually the voice of God or the voice of an angel. And so, you know, people can deceive themselves by their imagination into thinking they're hearing from God when they're not. And so that's kind of what he's saying here, that there there are great impressions on the imagination. And people begin imagining things. Um, and it could be even, you know, visions. Um and Edwards basically, you know, kind of echoes Obi-Wan Kenobi and says, it's basically these people that are weak minded that fall are susceptible to this. But it's not a sign of the work of the spirit. And I think we need to understand that. As we look at the biblical prophets and the apostles who actually did hear from God, they never had any question that they were hearing from God. And they were attested to by God through legitimate signs and wonders. So none of us were required to take their word for it that they heard from God. There was evidence given by god that he had indeed spoken to and through these people that's a discussion for another time but it is something to keep in mind here another thing is um number five one means used is setting an example or following in others so one person goes forward to the platform or quote-unquote to the altar and kneels down and prays. So other people go forward and kneel down and pray. Folks, this is used in revivalist gatherings all the time. They have volunteers, and I know because I've been one, they have volunteers who sit throughout the the church, stadium, arena, wherever they're holding this revival gathering, that when the invitation is given to come forward and quote-unquote accept Christ, these volunteers stand up and start forward. Not because they're going forward accept Christ, these are at least nominally Christians already, they are priming the pump. And they'll tell you quite openly in practice that when people see people going forward, it spurs them to go forward. So setting and following an example doesn't necessarily mean it's a movement of the Spirit. It's typical manipulation. Um, advertisers use this all the time. They call it bandwagoning. Get on the bandwagon. Everybody's doing it. And so that's not necessarily a sign of a movement of the Spirit. Then he says, um, number six is, it's accompanied by great imprudences and irregularities in conduct. This is more to the other way. This is more an indication that you can't look at this and say it's not a sign of the Holy Spirit. And so what is he saying? If you have a real revival, if, if God's Spirit is truly moving, not everybody who gets caught up in it is going to be truly regenerate or truly repentant. And so the fact that you have people Involved in the visible movement of the spirit doesn't mean they're actually involved in the actual movement of the spirit. So, some of the people that get get caught up in a real movement of the spirit are not themselves regenerate, and they may fall into sin. Um, and they may, you know, uh what does it say, uh, imprudences and irregularities in conduct. They might not behave properly. And so just because those are present doesn't mean the Holy Spirit isn't working. Um, number seven is uh, there's an intermix of errors in judgment or delusions of Satan. If God is making a real if God's Holy Spirit is really moving, Satan is going to be counterfeiting it and Satan is going to be trying to disrupt it. So the fact that there are satanic counterfeits and and disruptions taking place doesn't mean it's not real because that would be expected. Okay. And then he says, number eight, some who are worked on upon it first, later fall away. This kind of goes back, you know, So people may misbehave during it. People may come forward and seem genuine, but it doesn't last. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a real move of the Holy Spirit. What it means is that person wasn't moved upon by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that everybody wasn't. And then 9 says it's promoted by ministers who insist on the terrors of God's holy law. There may be real doctrinal preaching in what isn't a real movement of the Spirit, meaning that again, people can just get emotional. People's emotions are not necessarily a movement of the Holy Spirit, and it's one of those things that that you know some people are not as emotional as others. Some people are more susceptible to emotions as, than others. I have become more susceptible to emotions as I've grown older, probably because I'm I'm able more to be empathetic with people because I have more life experiences. And so there are times when I can get weepy reading a book because I can identify with what's going on. And it doesn't have to be a sad scene. I can get real weepy and emotional in a patriotic scene in, in some movie. Um, I can get weepy and emotional, you know, when, when the hero stands up and takes charge and, you know, because I can feel that emotion. So, but just because, so, you know, people can be emotionally manipulated intentionally and unintentionally. So, just because there's actual doctrinal preaching doesn't mean necessarily it's a real work of the spirit doesn't mean it isn't but it doesn't mean it is so in his second section he says here he gives five points and these are true scriptural evidence of a work of the holy spirit when you see these things you know the holy spirit is truly at work the first one is it raises the esteem of jesus christ in their eyes a true work of the holy spirit is going to glorify jesus the holy spirit was sent to point to christ so a true work of the holy spirit is going to make much of christ It's going to to emphasize his deity, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection. Christ is going to be all in all in a true work of the Holy Spirit. It points to Jesus. Now, you've got to be careful here, because as Chris Roseborough said, Chris Roseborough made an excellent point. False religions... He said, they're like Build-A-Bear shops. He calls them Build-A-God shops. Where you, you know, Build-A-Bear are these workshops where you go in and you make your own teddy bear. You pick out the teddy bear you want. You get to stuff it. You get to dress it. And, and you end up with your custom teddy bear that you do yourself. They have different colors of teddy bears, different clothes. Everything is there for you. And you go and build your teddy bear. And the last thing you do is you name your teddy bear. So in in, uh, Chris Roseborough's build a God scenario, these people come in and they pick and choose the things they want in their God. And they build their own God, not the God of the Bible. But when they're done with their God, the last thing they do is name it and in the western world the number one name for a build a god is jesus <laughs> so we got to understand there's a there's you know another jesus there's the true jesus and there's a whole bunch of another Jesuses, and so in a true work of the holy spirit much is going to be made of the true jesus so be aware that you may hear the name of jesus in a false revival look for the signs of a true jesus which again is his deity his sinless life his sacrificial death his resurrection the fact that his exclusivity he's the only way to christ these are the things that are signs of a true work of the Holy Spirit. It raises the esteem of Jesus Christ. Two, it operates against Satan's interests by discouraging sin. There is repentance. There is mourning over and turning from sin. Now, this again, we look at weeping we look at emotion and we say, oh, they're repentant. And that may or may not be a sign of repentance. Remember, emotionalism is not necessarily a sign. It may definitely be there, but it's not necessarily a sign. It's only going to be noticed over time. Has this person's life changed are they bringing forth fruit in keeping with repentance or did they have an emotional experience walk out the door and live just like they've always lived and so there's going to be a denouncement of sin there's going to be calling sin sin there's going to be repentance from sin and you'll, those will be signs of a, a true work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, a true work of the Holy Spirit causes men to have a greater regard for the holy Spirit, Holy Scriptures. It's Bible, folks. It's always Bible. It's the Word of God. The Word is central to every real working of the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing I want to point out here. Before we go any further, the real work of the Holy Spirit that we see here is entirely based on, um, or a real work of the Holy Spirit here it doesn't have to be large scale. All of these things that are signs of, all of the things that are signs of a true work of the Holy Spirit are present whenever an individual converts to Christ. So true works of the Holy Spirit are small scale and large scale. So, but, you know, when we look at something like a quote unquote revival, these things will be present. But these things are present whenever a sinner repents and comes to Christ. So it's always Bible, always scripture based, always results in a hunger for the scripture. And then his number four thing is it's a spirit of truth. It convicts of gospel truth. And in, it separates truth from error. So in a true work of the Holy Spirit... There is a sense of this, not this. This is the truth. This is not the truth. This is the truth. This is not the truth. So there's truth, but not error. Um, and and Edwards points out 1 John 4, 6. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there's a truth and error. Because there's if you read, we, we read John 4. That those first six verses, he's talking about the, the true follower of God differentiated from the false scholar of God. So there is a truth and error aspect of it there. And then it's a, a spirit of love toward God and men. And for that, he points to verses 7 to 11 in 1 John 4, where we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son To be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, that chapel message last Wednesday, that call to love one another, isn't wrong, but it was incomplete. See, we do not love because we feel the love of God. We do not love because of emotion, because love isn't an emotion. We can have warm, fuzzy feelings towards people we love, but we can also love people we're angry with. We can love people who have annoyed us. We can love people we're not feeling particularly warm and fuzzy toward at the moment. Excuse me. I'm going to be having to wrap this up because the throat is, is getting there. We love because we know the love of God, not because we feel the love of God. Saw that in verse 10 of 1 John 4. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul says the same things in Romans, in Romans 5 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, folks, it's not feelings. Feelings come and go. Feelings are affected by hunger, fatigue, circumstances. A lot of things affect our feelings. If you want to know the love of God, don't look to your feelings. If you want to know the love of God, look to the cross now as you look to the cross and as you understand what took place at the cross that can be a very emotional experience but these are emotions that come from knowing the truth you don't come to know the truth through emotions and that's a distinct difference now i pulled out you know i mentioned uh acts 2 and and pentecost as a true mass working of the holy spirit the other great example from scripture is nehemiah chapter 8 if my voice will hold out i intend to read all of chapter 8 and you're gonna have to excuse me while i pour another cup of coffee because my throat is needing the liquid This is, incidentally, Montana Coffee Traders Trailblazer Blend. All right. So, this is Nehemiah chapter 8. This is taking place after the return of people from exile. It's during the rebuilding of the walls, the temple the restoration of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. So that that sets our stage historically. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium, which had been made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Measiah on his right hand, and Petaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashabanadad, Zachariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and then he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maasiah, kelata Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pellaiah, the Levites, were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book of the law, from the law of God, explaining and giving insight, and they provided understanding of the reading. So they were reading the scriptures to the people, and they were explaining what it meant. This was a day of... Of preaching. Okay. Notice. There is no mention. Of music. Zero. I like music. I got hymnals right here beside me. I, I actually use hymnals in devotional reading. I love hymnals. I love singing. I love music in church. It is definitely part of the worship. But there was no Music. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites, who provided the people with understanding, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. There was conviction. And so they were comforting the people. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Then all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions and to celebrate with great gladness, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Their response was first weeping and repentance, and then joy and gladness and feasting. Next day, verse 13, Then on the second day the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. So in the second day, it isn't everybody. It's the leaders of the families coming together to learn more um, so that they can teach it to their families. They gathered together to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should make the report heard and make a proclamation of it pass through all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So this is at the time of the feast of booths which they have not been celebrating, and yet here they are. Excuse me. So what we see here in response is obedience to what is written in the law. So we had mourning and repentance. We had celebration. Now we're seeing obedience to the law. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and on their courts and on the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. The sons of Israel had, intent, had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, which is basically the entire time that the nation of Israel had been in the land, from the conquest under Joshua until the Babylonian captivity until the restoration they had not kept the law they had not celebrated the Feast of Booths and it says there was exceedingly great gladness till the people were, were happy and he Ezra again read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last and they celebrated the feast seven days and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the legal judgment, according to what was written in the law. So here we see it's centered on the word of God. There is repentance. There is celebration. There is obedience. And it's all based on the word of God. Now, I'm not saying that nobody sang. I'm not saying that there were not, was not music. But none was mentioned. It certainly wasn't central to what was happening. What was happening is people were hearing the word of God. They were being convicted by what it said. They were grieving over their lack of obedience to it. They were celebrating that they now knew the truth. And they were moving forward in obedience. So that's a real revival. Now, what's happening in Ashbury? Don't know yet. It's been too soon. The true signs of a work of the Holy Spirit take time to manifest themselves. We know there's emotion. That's not a sign. Um, we know there are people crying and weeping. That's not a sign. We know that it's attracting a lot of people. That's not a sign. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, from my understanding, it's mostly music. Um, I said there's two chapel messages I haven't watched yet, all the way through. So I don't know if I, uh, you know, in the chapel message I saw last Wednesday, the gospel was not presented. This is a university that is part of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. So it's not necessarily a solidly biblical Uh, doctrinally sound place to begin with. Um, There are some troubling things that I have heard from the Associated Ashbury Seminary, which is part of the university, um, which I'm not going to get into because, as you can tell, the voice is going. So we are going to have to wait and see what's happening out of Ashbury. I pray that... uh, A great many of these people truly come to know Christ, repent of their sin, become hungry for the scriptures, begin to learn the scriptures, and begin to move in obedience to them. Absolutely. That is my prayer. That should be your prayer. But is this a true revival? Honestly, I seriously doubt it. Um, And the reason I'm doubting it is this. This same school had a two-week chapel message, two-week chapel revival in 1970. Same thing basically happened. It did not result in a huge revival in the area, and so you know, I, I I generally view these things through the eyes of history, noting that most true works of the Holy Spirit are not large-scale. Most works of the Holy Spirit are very individually scaled. He brings people to repentance. There are very few times in church history when you saw Mass repentance. There have been many instances in history where you have seen large emotional events that did not lead to long-scale evidence of true repentance. And I fear that this is another one of these emotional events that is not a true work of the Holy Spirit. So that's what I suspect. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. We will only know once we can see the results. True works of the Holy Spirit are only evident really after weeks, months, even years. And so we will watch. Now, this has been quote-unquote, moth-to-the-flame time for a lot of false teachers who look at emotionalism as a sign of God's working or point to emotionalism as a sign of God's working. And the reason they do that is because their business is emotionally manipulating people. They're not true teachers of God's Word. And so some of them are trying to latch on to this So far, I haven't seen anyone having any kind of success doing that. But I would not be surprised if some word faith heretic tries to hijack this. Um, And if that happens, that doesn't mean there hasn't been a real move of the Holy Spirit. That goes back to the things that are not necessarily signs. We know that Satan will oppose any real work of the Holy Spirit. So the true works of the Holy Spirit, the true signs of a real work of the Holy Spirit take time to manifest. So we can't know yet. And we won't be able to know for a while. We're going to watch. We're going we're to keep look on it. And, and I will uh, you know, bring you any updates and any further thoughts that I have in future episodes, all right. I want to remind you once again that I will not be doing any more squirrel chatters this week. I'm going to rest my voice, get ready to preach on Sunday. Um, and so you won't be hearing from me here on squirrel chatter. I'll be on Twitter, you know, you'll see stuff on Twitter, but I won't be doing another podcast until next week. So Let's end with the collect of grace and then get on with our day and week. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance, to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, folks. Do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Pray for my voice. I'll see you next week for more episodes of scroll Chat. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.